how do you reconcile that with like a verse in is it second peter that you know talks about make every effort to add to your faith goodness self-control so on and so forth the effort is in prayer the effort is in a relationship with the lord it's it's god i need you to help me uh in this area the of challenge in my life today and whatever it is i'm facing and the problem is I mean, the problem with the pharisees was that they took the demands of the law which nobody could fulfill uh completely and they reduced them uh down with all their rules and regulations to much lesser commandments that they actually could fulfill mm-hmm. and then they felt they had the had established a claim upon God. God had has to accept me because I have taught tied my milk mint dill and cumin, or I have gone to the temple so many times a day, or you know I haven't touched a dead dead body today, or whatever it is that you know that I have or haven't done. It was all about me doing things and becoming holy, mm-hmm. as if I could generate the character and uh, of almighty God on my own within myself. And Jesus takes a knife to that whole thing in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you bunch of hypocrites, you haven't even begun. You're, you're total failures because this is all about you acquiring holiness. And there's nothing worse or more off-putting um, to unsaved people, to people who aren't Christians, than a bunch of hypocritical legalistic Christians. They're death. They're absolute death. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. So good to have you here joining us. I'm Jake, and I am joined here by my esteemed colleague, the one and only David Campbell. David, how are you? I am as good as always. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And we are also joined by our very dear friend, the one and only Chris Palmer, Dean of Theos Seminary and all-around good guy. Chris, so good to have you with us, man. Jake, good to be with you, man. David, good to see you, my brother. Looking forward to this conversation. Before we jump into it, just want to take a moment and say a huge thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast each week. It means the world to us, and uh, we love getting feedback from you, especially when it's positive. Actually, if I'm honest, I don't really like any of the negative feedback, but we don't get too much of that. We get mostly positive feedback, um, and we're grateful that you listen. And if you wouldn't mind just uh, leaving us a review, and um, if you'd be so inclined to give us five stars, we would love that. That is a huge help to us. I've been thinking about, uh, in the last week or so, uh, this whole discussion around open AI. Um, Have you guys seen any of that blowing up on social media? The chat I've seen GPT the people, thing. As, is this where people are putting their pictures and, and getting them to come back to see what they would look like in the AI world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a different company. Um, but yeah, that, that's a, like, I guess, same kind of technology. I haven't done it. Um, I'm, I'm too insecure to put, my, to put <laughs> pictures of my own face up on the internet like that. Uh, yeah. It feels like a flex. I don't know. Maybe maybe that would fit into y'all's, y'all's beta category. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the beta category. I love it. I, I don't. What? I, I'm not even sure what app that is that people are are, are doing that on. Um, but I don't I know what that coming. one's called. Yeah, but the yeah. the one that I'm uh, the one that I'm thinking about. So there's, I think the company is called OpenAI, and they have this new product 
called ChatGPT. And it's basically like, it, and maybe there's a better way to explain this, but it's basically like if Siri and and Google and Wikipedia had a child, that child is this. And you can literally go onto the program and type in whatever question, and it will spit out in a matter of seconds something that is the equivalent of a like high school level or above, maybe even like college level uh, article or however long you could ask for 500 words, you could ask for more on the subject that you're inquiring about. So like, for example, Mike, the, uh, the guy that runs Vast with me, um, you guys know him, but you know, for those who are listening, don't know him. He, he typed in like, what is Calvinism on this? And it spat out several paragraphs on the subject of Calvinism that was coherent, uh, correct. And it blew my mind. And I, the, the question is, right, I was like, what are all the uh, ramifications ethically for this? Because you can effectively now write an entire blog post on any subject without actually writing anything at all. And the part that scares me is how it connects to theology and uh, writing about ultimate things, which is what theologians do. Uh, th I mean, th th this Pandora's box has been opened. Um and I don't know how that's not going to have some kind of impact on the yeah. theological world. Well, you know, celebrity preachers have been doing this for years. <laughs> just called, it's, called ghost it's called what? Ghostwriters. Ghostwriters. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a technical ghostwriter here. You know, I, yeah. I, so what's the website? I'm curious what this, what is the website? Uh, okay. Yeah. Should we do like a live experiment? Yeah, let's do a live experiment. Who is chat? Who is GPT? I mean, I don't know if you chat. have to like have an account or what. I don't even know how this works. Try chat beat GPT. Okay, okay. Um, log. Oh gosh, you got to. I think you have to have an account. Okay. Well, we can do it another think. time, I guess. Boom. Chat GPT. Yeah. I don't think I have an account. Who is the creator behind this? Is this is is this a Google thing or no? I think the I think the name of the company is OpenAI. Some it's probably wow. some like Silicon Valley company or something. And is it in? Is it? Are they beta testing it right now? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's live. Like yeah. okay, let, let me give you an example. Right. In fact, I think so. A mutual friend of ours, Fillmore, um, texted me and Mike the other day. I'd never heard of this, and he texted me and Mike asking about this thing. He's like, "Yo, did this thing just change the world?" And I'm like, what, what even is this? Um, and he sent, he texted through an example and I wish I could find it in my text messages right now, but of course I can't. In any case, wh what are y'all's thoughts on it? Like, yeah. Does that scare you as much as it kind of scares me? Yeah. There's a thought that I have, and I'm going to read a quote by one of an author. I really enjoy his name is Mortimer J. Adler. I, I think this, all the, all the more confirms that we live in a society. We live in a time where you can, you can know something without having learned it. And I think if you really right. allow yourself to think about the, the heaviness of what that is, you could look at that as a, a good thing if you're trying to just get by, 
or you look at that as, as a negative thing. And so I'll speak in respect to theology versus any other discipline or practice because you'd asked about things that are final, final things. Mm-hmm. Other says that, and let me just, I don't want to belab- belabor this quote, but just bear with me for a second. Getting information is learning. And so it's coming to understand what you did not understand before, but there is an important difference between these two kinds of learning to be informed is to know simply that something is the case to be enlightened is to know in addition, what it is all about, why it is the case, what its connections are with other facts in what respects it is the same in what respects it is different and so forth. The distinction familiar in terms of the difference between being able to remember something and be able to explain it. If you remember what an author says, you've learned something from reading him. If what he says is true, you've learned something about the world. But whether it is in fact about the book or fact about the world that you have learned, you have gained nothing but information if you have exercised only your memory. You have not been enlightened. Enlightenment is only achieved when, in addition to knowing what an author says, you know what he means and why he says it. It is true, of course, that you should be able to remember what the author said as well as to know what he meant. Being informed is a prerequisite to being enlightened. The point, however, is not to stop at being informed. And I think that speaks to the question that you're saying is if I go type something about Calvinism and I read what they say, I'm informed about what Calvinism is, but that doesn't get sort of to the question behind the question or the thought behind the thought um, or, or why it's actually being said that way. And Again, it's, it comes back to what I always call the information versus the formation. So to be able to find something, it may be helpful and you may understand it, um, but you may not know why it's the case. And so these types of things, I th- I'm not trying to say these are horrible things and that I'm very happy that we live in the information age. Actually, I just, somebody had mentioned a movie and I didn't really, wasn't familiar with it. So I went on, but I think it's a difference between finding a fact about a character in a movie and actually trying to explain that in its totality and the effects that it has uh, in what matters in life. So say more about that. Like, so make that more Mm -hmm. concrete for me. So I can, I can write, if I, if so, I can can read a book written by somebody on a topic, or I can read something that open AI spits out. Both might be factually correct, Mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily formational. And why is the one just strictly information? Well, I think it, it goes back to, um, if you read a book on, on an author has to say, you know, the, you know, the mind of that author, but there's a getting behind that. That's, that's really important. And I mean, I, when it comes to open AI, I'm not exactly sure where the sources are coming from, where they're pulling these from. If they're scholarly and they're valid sources, it's a good, it's a good start, but it maybe begs a temptation that because I looked it up on open AI that I can pontificate on it and now act like a total expert on something like this. And I think that's maybe what people might be given to do is to say, well, now I know it because I looked it up. It's the same idea as Wikipedia, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of getting that, that general topical thing versus getting behind it all. Who's playing into this? Who's actually saying this? I mean, my, my concern is if somebody goes on open AI, you don't know who said it. They don't know why they said it. They don't know the sources behind why they said it. All they know is that it's popping up on a computer screen right. and they're, they're willing to trust that. And I think that there's a level of skepticism and cynicism uh, that comes from being a good researcher 
that really makes the most of you and, and that brings that formation. And that formation being why it's being said or the epistemological ramifications or, or aspects behind it. So basically what you're saying is the process of discovering what there is to be known is is just as powerful as arriving at the knowledge itself. Yeah, I think that's the formational part is the process. And I don't, if it really matters to you, again, with my illustration of the, of the movie character, it, it's not that it's not that big of a deal. The reason I'm looking it up is just to, just, you know, trivial. To find an answer, yeah. It's trivial. But if it's something that really matters and I'm, I'm willing to teach it from the pulpit or, or do something where people are going to base their lives and order their lives around it or, or act like the expert on it, I should know more than what OpenAI has given to me. I should have mm-hmm. gone through the turns. Otherwise, it's, it's, uh, I think it's really research at that point. Somebody mm-hmm. else is doing the research and you're willing to trust that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an extension of... Uh, it's an extension of the whole problem we've had of Googling things, you know, and yeah. at, at, at the worst level, you get people that don't listen to their doctor anymore because they found something on Google. Um, yeah. Uh, and, or Wikipedia. I mean, if I read an article on, you know, uh, Donald Trump, let's say, and the article is written by a reporter from the Washington post then I know that they're going to reflect a certain angle. If, on the other hand, it's written by somebody on Fox or Breitbart or something like that, I know it's going to be a different angle. Um, so that if, if, if I'm really trying to get a balanced viewpoint, I'm going to take into account the bias that is behind, you know, which, which, which comes from me knowing who this person is. Uh, and so uh, the same, same in, you know, the- theological research that if I read an article by someone from, you know, union seminar, in New York, if it even still yeah. exists anymore. Uh, and if I read another article by someone from Trinity evangelical divinity school, which I attended for a year, mm-hmm. I'm going to automatically put a lot more credibility in the Trinity article than I am in the other one, because I know that, uh, you know, the, the, the place that they're coming from. Um, but with this kind of thing, uh, who's to say whatever they spit out mm-hmm. in Calvinism might yep. have been secretly written by Chris Palmer and it could be a load of trite. <laughs> or, you know, or, or it could have been, been written by me and been, been a work of art. Uh, yep. But... Um, uh, you know, you just don't know. It's like, who writes this stuff in Wikipedia? I've come across stuff in Wikipedia that's biased. Somebody somebody mm-hmm. in there is, is putting their slant in it. Well, we all have a slant, but that's yeah. that's the problem. That's the, as, as you point out, Chris, um, when you're in advanced education study, you're, you're reading what this person thinks, what that person thinks, what the next person yep. thinks, and you're trying to come to your own conclusion but you're aware of what well you're drinking from or wells you're drinking from. Uh, And, uh, and, and, and to, to suggest that you can just press a button and get an absolutely impartial, true form of information about anything is a a delusion. It's a form of propaganda. So it's dangerous. So so here's an example. I just had Mike, because he has an account. So he just, you know, 
typed in, can you make an argument using scripture for cessationism? And within seconds, it spits out this. One possible argument for cessationism using scripture could be as follows. First, it is important to note that the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament, such as prophecy and healing, were given to the early church for a specific purpose. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 11, Paul writes that these gifts are given for the common good and that each person has a different gift according to the grace of God. Second, some passages in the New Testament suggest that these gifts were temporary and would eventually cease. For example, and then it gives an example from 1 Corinthians. So obviously, you know, it's just spitting out the exact question that he's answering for, uh, that he's asking. But th- right. that is crazy to me that in a matter of seconds, you can ask such a specific question like that and it can pump out, you know, a wrong sermon, but a sermon nonetheless. Yeah. I think that, that, so what I'm listening to, it sounds pretty on par with got questions, right? I mean, it's just, it's not the information that differs. It's just the arrival of the information that it's not pulling up got questions, but it's, maybe it is, maybe it's pulling. It's um, it's probably pulling from sources all over the internet. Pulling from sources all over the internet. Although it's not bringing about the full perspective and the full picture of it. I mean, it seems that that sounds like an undergraduate answer of it. And totally, but, but, but if you use that, if you use that, it's the undergraduate answer without having done the undergraduate work work. Right. You don't, you haven't done the work. And the reason, okay, I'll give you an example. Maybe something that just happened to me the other day. I'm I'm working, I'm working with, I won't get into the terms and specify anything, but I'm working with a, a specific term that I'm thinking about using in the final chapter uh, of my writing, okay, next year. And I have to begin thinking about this term. And I was shocked to find an article uh, on Sunday night where the person is using this term differently. And it, 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 it devastated me because it brought clarity to what's being said. And I thought, that's exactly what I've been missing this whole time. And that took, and then and it was almost like that missing piece that made the whole picture come together where it gave me what I needed, but I, it was an obscure part. Now I have what I need to bring everything full circle in this, this particular section of what I'm trying to do. And that took research and it took arriving to, and I think those types of experiences make you the person behind who can supply the information to what people are out there looking for. So the person who's so here's the thing, the person who's out here out here Googling, if you remain at that level, you'll never be more than a Googler. Uh-huh. But somebody's got to provide the information. Well, who's the one providing the information and the accurate information? It's the one that knows how to do the research, hopefully. Uh-huh. Hopefully uh-huh. to be accurate. So again, um I'll I'll give you an example. DA Carson my advisor had, had uh, met D.A. Carson at a conference and D.A. Carson was working through his commentary on John. Well, my advisor is a Johannine scholar and he sees D.A. Carson who's working on this, uh, this pillar commentary, which uh, David will like me saying this, but it's, I think the finest commentary on John. Um, <laughs> it, is. Amazing commentary. It, it is a very good commentary. And um, so Carson is a Canadian Calvinist. Yeah, How much yeah. better can you get than that? A good it's, commentary it's, written by a great Calvinist. Uh, although Raymond, although Raymond Brown's commentary is pretty good, but I, I will say I like the Carson's better. And my advisor's heart would break overhearing that, but I do like Carson's better. Anyway, um, he says to Carson, he goes, "Why do? Why are you writing? Why do we need another commentary on John?" And D.A. Carson, it would shock you what he says. He goes, "We don't need another commentary on John. We need more theologians who have written a commentary on John." And I thought that was a profound answer 
Because what it's mm. saying is that mm. we need more theologians who are formed in this discipline because it, mm. it brings their thinking to another place. And so mm. I don't think we need more people who can go on Google and, and type in an answer. I think we need more people who have done the work so they can provide mm. answers. That's really good. It reminds me of a quote from a, um, a woman named Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she said, I write to discover what I know. And mm-hmm. I read that quote early it's on beautiful. in my, uh, in my uh, preaching career, for lack of a better term. And it changed the way that I prepared. Because I used to try and think of what I knew and then tried to write it down. But it was through the process of writing that I discovered what I knew. And what's in you is, um, is what you have collected over a lifetime of study and research and prayer and, and living in Koinonia. Um, and you're preaching out of a, a place of you know, revelatory gift, I guess, at that moment. Um, or preparing out of a place of revelation. And it just kind of reminds me of something similar to what you're saying. It's like you can go out and p- pull a bunch of points together and put it on a sheet. And you're just kind of megaphoning something that you read. And that's a lot different to personally undertaking the process of, of learning and internalizing, processing, and then delivering. Yeah, and then in, in within scholarship, there's always that tendency to just lump everything together and not really delineate and specify and accurately represent who believes what. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we're talking about, uh, say, well, if we're t- let's say we're talking about soteriology and a, and a specific point on atonement and substitution. You well, you may find certain people that have beliefs on, subst- on, on atonement, but they vary very slightly. And those slight differences actually do matter. I mean, if you go back to the church councils, homoousius and homoousius, you, you're down to an iota of difference. Right. And so small differences make a huge deal about when it comes to thinking of something. And I think there are things that we need to consider that specifically. And it, it takes that level of scrutiny. Um, and so, again, I think why you're using this open AI is is an important, important thing. I mean, just to make TikTok videos and, and pontificate, or people are going to become less and less impressed by this mm-hmm. because everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Okay, let's jump in. Uh, we're going to pick up where David and I left off last week. Uh, fortunately enough, uh, Chris Palmer not only has read the book, The Incarnation of God, he's also the one who recommended it to me. Uh, <laughs> and so thank you for that because it, it is a wonderful book and I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. it. Um, so last week we talked a bit about just the concept in general of God's attributes uh, being synonymous, I suppose, with who God is. Um, that great quote, God does who he is. Um, and so today we want to jump specifically into bringing out the, that to bear on some of God's attributes. So we're going to talk about love, holiness, and freedom. And then when we're done with that, I have a, a question that I want to ask you guys about um, <laughs> something confusing in the Bible. Uh, so, you know, everyone, you want to hang around for that. Um, so let me just read this first quote just to kind of contextualize the, the conversation. So uh, John C. Clark says this, to affirm divine simplicity is to confess that God's attributes cannot be meaningfully distinct from who God is in himself. That is, his attributes are differentiated properties of his indivisible being. Can one of you super smart gentlemen comment on that? What, what's he saying in layman's terms? Well, I think his point is that we tend to look at uh, the qualities of God, whether they be love, holiness, omnipotence, or whatever, as being 
independent concepts that float out there in the air, which is how Plato looked at them. Um, but actually, the biblical revelation is that those uh, are part of their expression of the life of God within the Trinity. Uh, and we don't really know anything about what love is uh, other than uh, by seeing and knowing the God who is love. So there's no independent idea or concept or reality of love or holiness or glory or omnipotence that exists independent of God. Uh, that's what he's trying to say. It's a, it's a, it is, sounds like a tricky distinction, but um, it, it actually represents the difference between a Platonic view of reality and a biblical view of reality. Yeah, yeah and I think you clarify the, or add to that, Chris. Yeah, I do, I think that, um, grammatically that again this kind of ties in the the OpenAI discussion that that would be so. Let's say you go on and you, you discover that. Well, how do you back that scripturally? And what are some of the finer points that reveal the mind of the apostles? Without it, without what did they say anything implicitly? Or did they infer anything when you read the text closely that they may have done grammatically to show that? Well, there's that text. Is it First John three fourteen? Or I'm not sure the actual address of it, but God is love, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that seems like a very friendly text. Mm -hmm. And if you if you sort of think use a syllogism for this, you could say, well, God is love, so love is Wait, God. Pause. Pause. You just used yeah. a, a word that's too complicated for me. Did I say syllog syllogism? Logic? But we'll just say logic. If you use a, a syllogistic logic, what is it? Syllogism when you're kind of trying to work A is B is B is A sort of type of logic. If A is B is B, does B equal A, right? An, an instance or a form uh, of a form of reasoning in which a conclusion is drawn from two given or assumed propositions. Correct. So, okay. Yeah. So, so if you say, if you say God is love, does that mean love is God? Mm -hmm. So if I said Jake is Chris. To the conclusion that a lot of modernistic yeah. uh, theologians drew when they right. moved away from the concept of a personal God. Right. They yeah. just said, we don't need God. We've got love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I said Chris is Jake, well, Jake is Chris. Well, I mean, you could conclude that. You may need some more propositions and more presuppositions to, to begin with, but that may be a possible conclusion. It doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility to say that. But, but to keep them from doing that, John puts the definite article in front of Theos. So he says, ho Theos, eisen agape, which means that God remains a subject, okay, God is love, and there's no definite article in front of the um, agape, mm -hmm. which would tell you that it, it can't work the other way. Love can't be God. Mm -hmm. Love is an attribute of God, mm -hmm. and so it, and and so that makes it right off the bat that love can't ex love doesn't exist. Love is not God. Love is not the divine thing. So it's almost it is it is in defense of Christ and what He's done. Okay, but to bring it back to and how God has demonstrated His love to the world in a fleshly Christ, but to bring it back to what David is saying is that the properties of God, okay, love is not something. It's not something that exists independently. God doesn't have love; He is love, is what David is trying to say. And so, it's he's it's personal. 
and it's part of who he is and it can't be divided from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think we could also go so far as to say that apart from him, there is no way to know love because if love, if God is eternal and has always been love, that means that love is eternally defined by God because love originates in God, which means that I guess, you know, apart from God, the best we have are, are distortions and false advertising. So you guys have already, do you want to say something? Okay. You guys have already taken the conversation into, um, into the specific example of the love of God. Um, so let, let's just go ahead and go there. Um, let me let me begin with this. Author says, we must be aware of contradicting the good news of the gospel by suggesting that God created the world so that he might know interpersonal love or that the father sent the son to redeem sinners so that God might once again love them. God's acts in creation and redemption are prompted by and are profound demonstrations of the love that God is. So I think that quote brings some more clarity to what we're saying. But again, can you guys break that down into uh, something simpler? What's he saying? Part, I mean, he anchors a lot of what he has to say rightly in the idea of the Trinity. So that in eternity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in an eternal relationship of love. Uh, and so it's like uh, I knew, I, I, I may have said this before, so anyone listening will have to forgive me, but um, uh, I knew uh, a guy that um, had uh, taken a course from C.S. Lewis at Oxford. And he said everybody had to be there in time because Lewis began lecturing in the hallway and when he swept into the room with his academic robe on, so on, he was already a few sentences into the lecture. Uh, and that's what God is, that God has already existed in an eternal relationship of love before he entered the room of creation. We're parked in the room of creation, but it all happened before that. And what creation is, is simply an outflow of the eternal love of God, the Father, the Son, and mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit, the mutually, mm-hmm. uh, the mutual love between the members of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm really glad you said that because that brings me to something that the author says that's not obvious to me. So he, he talks about how the mutual love of the Father and the Son is the blueprint for creation. In that creation is an overflow of the effulgent, which I've never even heard that word before, so I don't even know what that means, love of God. And I don't even know if I pronounced it correctly. A celebration of the Father's love for the Son, that the Son might be the firstborn of many siblings. Okay, it is not obvious to me that that the Father and the Son's love uh, for each other in the communion of the Holy Spirit, which is a whole nother phrase that I want to talk about because that phrase is still kind of confusing to me. But their love almost, it seems like he's saying almost mandated creation, like creation had to happen as an as a result of their love. But my question is, like, then why is it creation almost as old as God is? I'm sorry? Because they, 
Well, because they've been loving each other for eternity. And if creation is a, is a necessary overflow of their love, mm-hmm. at what point did that get necessitated? Do you understand well, what I'm asking? Because you're thinking in the wrong categories. God exists outside of time. Mm-hmm. So the point at which God created uh, is irrelevant. Um, and, and it's not something we, we could ever understand anyway. Um, but that's part of what was there in his eternal counsel that he, the point is that he created as a result of, as an outflow of the pre-existing love mm-hmm. relationship within mm-hmm. the Trinity. But, but and it, it must be said that it was by choice, right? Like God decided to create. His love does not yes, necessitate because if it that he wasn't creates. by choice who was forcing God to do it. Right. But it's not it's not some like uh it's not that his love necessitated that he had to. No, it it's that it's that his love uh is expressed outwardly in his creation. Mm-hmm. It's simply a part of who God is. I think and I think that saying that his love necessitated it maybe draws too much of a dichotomy between God and his attributes as though he's independent of his love. Like the, the, his love is holding a gun to his own will saying you will. And I know maybe you're not setting it up that way, but it seems to me that if his love forced him to do it, that's too much in my mind of a dichotomy. It seems that God possesses love is love. Mm-hmm. It's an attribute. I think it's fair to say it's an attribute. Mm-hmm. Of God. Yeah, I think you're separating God and love and saying love is an independent force that's compelling God to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I no, I'm not that. saying that. I'm saying that that that, that if I, if you if make that, the statement, yes. if that's the statement, if if yes. said person says this, the love yes. of God compelled him. Well, that tells us what you think about God and what you think about love mm-hmm. and where you position love about God. And it, it's I don't I think I think you can say that innocently. Um, th- I've written a lot of things in papers where I'm like, yeah, I, I'm a heretic by saying that. And you didn't even realize <laughs> what you mean. There's a guy that it's, it's like God is compelled <laughs> to save me because I put my hand up. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> David's coming for the Wesleyans right now. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I think putting your hand up the at an goal, I'll have you, I'll have you David. know, uh, that I had two people. In my son and my Sunday service this past weekend, uh, in in two different services, there was two different yeah. individuals who put their hand up at an altar call, a very clear altar call, and came forward and I prayed for them and yep. absolutely no doubt that they are being filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment and getting saved. That's one. You know why? Well, let me just say this. Do you know why God created Calvinists? Because <laughs> because he has a sense of humor. <laughs> I I didn't I didn't I didn't explain this up front, but ladies and gentlemen, David David Campbell is uh, is my beloved Calvinist uh, friend and and mentor. Uh, and Chris Palmer is, is my God, Calvinism is part of the essence of God, like love. <laughs> Jesus was a Calvinist. We all know Jesus was a Calvinist. He was a Calvinist. He he got it before Calvin did. That's where Calvin got it from. You know. I, I will I will say that. The funniest meme maybe we've made against Calvinism. It shows a kid sitting on a bench next to Jesus, and he's saying to Jesus, "Have you ever read Calvin?" <laughs> Amazing. It's good. It's good. Chris. So Chris is not a Calvinist. 
Um, but although I, some, I although I, on I some love, days I, he I, is. And on some days I am actually. On yeah. some days I am a Calvinist. I'm not going to lie. Some days well, I am. On some days you're not safe. <laughs> and I'm just confused. <laughs> and Jake's in the middle confused. Uh, you know what, Jake? Some, would somebody please blow the show far and move us on? Okay. 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 Yeah. So uh, again, just to clarify, I'm not saying that God's love necessitates it. Yeah, um, and and the author yeah, isn't saying that. He's saying that God's love amongst himself is the blueprint for creation. But it just kind of made me think, like, at what point did his love overflow into creation? And uh, and why did he decide at one point? These are questions we can't answer. Um, let, let's move on to holiness. Can we do that? Okay. Okay. Um, God is love. I'm going to start here because I think this is – we don't have all the time in the world and we need to talk about a bunch of things at once. God is love and God is holy. But God is not wrath in as much as wrath, unlike love and holiness, is not intrinsic and inherent to who God is. Thus, there is no divine wrath where there is no human sin. The reason I read that quote is because I think sometimes people think of God's holiness as like being the opposite to his love, as though holiness were the equivalent of God's uh, justice or wrath or judgment. Um, And he's drawing a very clear distinction that that's not the case at all. That God's holiness is an attribute of God unto itself that certainly qualifies God's love. And for that matter, as far as I can tell, qualifies all of God's attributes because he's not just he's not just a better version of what we can point to in humanity. He is he is the the perfect version and the epitome and originator of of his attributes. Um and and all of that, I guess, is what makes God holy. And then in order to go ahead, uh, just in that same page, he says, I thought this was brilliant. God's wrath is but the willed shape of that holy love when it is defied, violated and mobilized by sin. In other words, um, for God to leave sin to prosper and go unpunished and undealt with is a violation of his love. It's the same way I was talking to somebody earlier in the day, um, you know, if you don't uh, um, talk to this person about the issues in their life, uh, even though it may be a very difficult conversation, it, you're not really loving them. You, you, you've got to expose the dysfunction or the sin that's going on in their life. As a pastor, we've all done that, and it's very difficult, uh, and we're accused of being unloving. Uh, and pastors can be unloving, but actually, hopefully, the reason we're doing it is because uh, what they're doing is wrong. It's harmful to them. It's harmful to other people. But we're exercising uh, a, a, a church discipline, a function of judgment, a function of a minor, you know, expression of wrath in in a sense, because God actually is angry at that violation of His image. But I thought the idea that he expresses, the authors express here that um, wrath isn't so much an attribute of God as it is a manifestation of his love. I think I think we can all understand that if we've had children discipline them or we've been pastors and disciplined people. You know, I think we can understand that. Uh, you know, if God if God wipes Vladimir Putin from the face of the earth. Uh, which we would probably most most of us would like God to do. Um, 
uh, that that is that an expression of wrath? Yes, but as expression of love. Yes, it's also expression of love because God won't tolerate that kind of nonsense going on and harming his creation. So it's a it's a it's it's a way of pointing out the fact that liberal, you know, postmodernistic type people that that say, oh, you know, a God of hate, a God who judges that, you know, there's no judgment, et cetera. And basically it's everything ha- has to be accepted and endorsed. Um, that's not loving at all. That's very damaging to people and hurtful in the long run. Because allowing that to continue does harm to God's people. Yeah. And whether you're God's people or even not God's people, you know, it's like you go to your doctor and you've got cancer and your doctor decides it's unloving to tell you that you've got cancer, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, I, no, the doctor has to exercise his judgment and and it can be a very painful conversation, but he's doing it because this is an out of order situation that has to be dealt with. When we say that God is holy uh, in the positive sense, is it enough to say that we mean that God is, uh, he is his qualities unto himself and nothing and no one else is like him. And in the negative sense, we say that God God's holiness mandates that he must judge sin, that he must express wrath towards sin because it, it uh, trespasses against who he is. Is that well on, a fair on the assumption that on the assumption that the holiness of God re- represents, you know, the Hebrew Kadesh concept of uh, represents that which is completely uh, other. Uh, to us, um, it's what Karl Barth called the totalitarianer. They're totally different from us. That's who God is. But it isn't that in that he's totally different from us means that he is pure. He is full of love. He is full of grace. He is full of mercy and all these things that we are not full of. That's that's why God can be considered Uh, that's why the holiness of God isn't just that God is completely different from us. It's in what respect he's completely different from us and what the content of that looks like. And so, so for God to, you know, uh, at the end of revelation for God to cast uh, all that is evil out of the new Jerusalem is a judicial act of wrath, but it's also an act of love because otherwise the new Jerusalem would be destroyed, and any uh, in, in any play the eternal existence of love would would it wouldn't exist anymore, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, like, yeah. Well, I wasn't going to bring it up, but David brought it up. So, if I can kind of lean into the book of Revelation for a second, if if you don't mind, absolutely. I think Revelation That's pretty much all we talk about on this podcast. <laughs> okay, well, you got to your left and to your right. You got two guys that I think have heard like that book a little bit. So, mm-hmm. um, and I will say that I did use David Campbell and cite him in my thesis. So you are forever ingrained in scholarship, uh, Pentecostal scholarship, David. <laughs> <laughs> it was predestined. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I I think that. First of all, it's interesting that John writes the book Revelation. 
because he's the apostle who loved Jesus, who the apostle Jesus loved, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this gospel that really focuses and centers around love. He, he makes, a, he talks a lot about love. Mm-hmm. And then what, what perplexes a lot of scholars, particularly of the liberal end, particularly ones coming out of University of Chicago, where they, they seem to move progressive in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. is the violence that you see in the book of Revelation and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the language, the wrath language that's there. And I've given a fair shot at looking at it to see, okay, are they taking wrath language and um, repurposing it? Are they taking violent imagery from the Old Testament and are they repurposing it? And the problem- By they, you I, mean like John, is John doing that? Yeah, they're looking right. at, yeah, is John doing that? Are they, are they, are they, they think yeah. that John is doing this. So by they, right. I'm referring to them who think John to- is doing this. Read their argument, you know, and give it. It's fairly, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when you come into scholarship, you give a fair look at it and say, okay, I'm not going to bring what I already believe to the table. Let's just let's look at this for. Is this what the text is doing? Is this what I think John is doing? It is this what's going on? And not only do I think they have a bias, but one bone I'm going to pick with that, in a nod to our podcast beyond, issue, beyond beyond pick, one of the beyond pick. That's a nice echo and allusion to Thales' podcast, Thales Media's podcast, is that I think that what that does is it sets the wrath and the holiness of God in competition with the love of God, that the wrath language is completely different from the love of God. And I don't think they're in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's and or. I think it's both. And I think they work together. Mm -hmm. And that's what the author here is trying to say. Mm-hmm. is that the justice of God and the holiness of God, which I think are unique, work together in tandem with the love of God. Because you have, as Revelation opens up, Christ, and you you, you first, before you get to the plagues, before you get to the opening of the six seals and the, and the seven trumpet judgments and then the seven bowl judgments, and this this middle section that people really, you know, nobody struggles so much with the first three chapters, last four chapters, that they struggle in this middle section. We see this wrath being poured out. Well, Around it, you have you have the love of God, and I think that the love of God necessitates these judgments that are to take place. Mm-hmm. That's in there, but in those judgments, in those judgments, and we won't go through all the text. I do think you see Christ in those, and you you see Christ very present in those. And I don't think it's a mean, angry Christ. I think the way he's set up in the very beginning is a Christ, a Jesus, a Jesus that. That gave his life out of love, and so I don't see, I don't see holiness and love in competition with each other. I see that they they necessitate each other, mm-hmm. and how it works itself out in humankind is through Christ's sacrifice, and eventually through judgment, but through repentance and patience and the offering of Himself to mankind. Um, which, if we go back, to, he, he started. I mean, the the, the revelation. I don't say he started in, in in the incarnation, but it's that's certainly the climax of it. It moves to the cross, and then it moves to his work of of through the Spirit and how he redeems sinful mankind up until that that eschaton. So, I, I, my point is, I don't see them in competition. What you don't mean to say, though, by saying that Christ is not angry, um, is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he's not. He's not violently lashing out in an in an unmeasured uh spontaneous way he is acting in accordance with his will like he's not putting his love on hold and all of a sudden being wrathful 
He's, yeah, I think still... sometimes when I, I think sometimes when we we speak of the word wrath, we need to be we need to be very careful what we mean because if we had an abusive father, or abusive mother, or or you know we have a, a bad marriage, we think that wrath means this or, or this angry can mean this. Uh, who knows what it means? But I think that God will hold people to consequence, mm-hmm. and and that's what I mean by that. I don't mean that He's out here looking for people, head hunting and looking for people just just. Put him, put everybody in hell for the sake. Put him in hell. I think he's merciful. So if you're going to talk about his holding people to consequence for sin, that's not the motivation for that. Is not because he's just mad and he's a mean guy. No, his judgment is in order to protect the eternal dwelling place of love, which is the New Jerusalem. But I, Jake, I thought uh, if you're done with that, uh, but not the topic of holiness. I really love what a couple of things they had to say on this subject uh, where um, they make the statement, holiness should never be confused with the sham substitute of moralism. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that every preacher needs to address. Moralism is self-styled, self-satisfied, self-righteousness, a smug and sanctimonious attempt to be holy in one's own terms, a sometimes subtle form of self-lordship that it, inevitably inevitably renders jesus christ superfluous mm-hmm. and then he makes the statement or they the authors make this statement the incarnation confronts sinful humanity with the scandal that holiness is not something to achieve but someone to receive mm-hmm. and then they tie it in with this idea that our concern shouldn't be the acquisition of holiness but the manifestation of the life of christ within us so the holiness is actually the life of God shared with me and in me and through me. And as a pastor, I have, you know, encountered, encountered tons of people who have sunk back in, 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 even though they believe in the grace of God for salvation, they seem to think that sanctification is a matter of how hard they work at, at you know, being good people. And this is, you know, seeps into the thinking of uh, Bible-believing churches, and we lose sight of the grace of God. And we we have to go back again and again and again to the grace of God to realize that our sanctification is accomplished by the grace of God, that Mm -hmm. if the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural, which we'd agree on, we can't manufacture them, then why would we think we can manufacture the fruit of the Spirit? It's the fruit of the Spirit, as much as the gifts are the gifts of the Spirit, And so all we can do is say, God, I have nothing in myself. I need you to impart the fruit of the spirit into my life. I need your shared life in me because no matter how hard I try, that's what Paul is saying in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I can never do. You know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Only the grace of God on a daily basis coming into our lives will do that. And I think that, if we got this, it would be a massive relief uh, to a lot of people. And it, it, it wouldn't be just, a, okay, I don't have to do anything, you know, I, who cares, you know, how I live my life. No, it's that every day I need to go back to God and say, Lord, I can't produce this, at this level of goodness or merit or brownie points or whatever you want to call it in my life. I need you, Lord, today. I need your spirit today to get me through the day, to be loving toward my spouse or my children or to to do what I need to do at work or to do whatever God is requiring 
me to do. So I, I thought those were fantastic statements. But the promise of it is the life of God in me, you know, where he who knew no sin became sin for our sake, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not that we might acquire righteous qualities. We might become the righteousness of God. How does that happen? It happens by God sharing his life within us. Mm-hmm. And Which I think is a that's mystical a thing. truth of the Bible. Yeah, and Sorry it's a mystical thing. And, and um, but it's in line with, with the whole thesis of the book, right? Like through the incarnation, that means Christ is the holiness of the Christian. And if Christ is the only holiness of the Christian, then that means the Christian's only hope of holiness is for what's in Christ to, to flow to me as I've joined myself to him, like a branch in, in the vine, so to speak. But like, I don't know ground that for for people how how does his holiness become my holiness because like how do you reconcile that with like a verse in is it second peter that you know talks about make every effort to add to your faith goodness self-control so on and so forth how how is that well, not at well, odds the, with the, what we're talking about the effort is in prayer the effort is in a relationship with the lord it's it's god i need you to help me uh, in this area of challenge in my life today and whatever it is I'm facing, I can't do it. You know, um, I need you. And uh, and the problem is, the problem with the Pharisees was that they took the demands of the law, which nobody could fulfill uh, completely, and they reduced them. Uh, down with all their rules and regulations to much lesser commandments that they actually could fulfill. Mm-hmm. And then they felt they had the had established a claim upon God. God had, has to accept me because I have taught, tied my milk, mint dill and cumin, or I have gone to the temple so many times a day, or, you know, I haven't touched a dead, dead body today or whatever it is, you know, that I have or haven't done. It was all about me doing things and becoming holy as if I could generate the character and uh, of almighty God on my own within myself. And Jesus takes a knife to that whole thing in the sermon on the mountain says, you bunch of hypocrites, you haven't even begun. You're, you're total failures because this is all about you acquiring holiness. And there's nothing worse or more off putting um, to unsaved people, to people who aren't Christians than a bunch of hypocritical legalistic Christians, their death, their absolute death. And well, uh, j- just to, so like that verse in second Peter, right? So he starts out with saying his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness translation. God's power is at work in me through Christ Jesus. And then uh, skipping down to, to verse five for this very reason, Make every effort. So because you are supernaturally connected to the God-man, uh, make every effort. And so it would make sense then logically that the effort we make is uh, in connection to that that relationship. Yeah, he's made us partakers in the divine nature. That's mm-hmm. extraordinary. Mm-hmm. That verse to me seems to be a great summary of a lot of what uh, this book is talking about. So in thinking about how we how his holiness becomes becomes our holiness. I think 
there we, we sometimes mix it up because we feel that because the grace of God is what we've been made partakers of the divine nature. That on the other end, that there's no that it, there's no action or there's no intentionality on our end for anything. It's mm-hmm. just sort of we are. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Scripture reads that way. Mm-hmm. I don't think it ever reads that way. I think there. I know that it shows what God has done for us. God has initiated it to us. Mm-hmm. God has brought. God has called us. There, we have that effective call from God, et cetera, et cetera. But even in that, make every effort. Okay, you get to Ephesians chapter six, and he's telling you he's giving active commands and imperatives that put believers are supposed to, to put on. Yeah, these types of things, this type of language, is constantly used. But also in re- in remembering something very important that Paul is writing to a community, and everything is communal at that time. Mm-hmm. He's and he's saying that he's saying these sorts of commands about holiness and about God's holiness in how community works out its relationships with one another, mm-hmm. right? And I think we miss that sometimes because of our own individualization that we have as a culture. That aspect gets missed, that everything that we're doing here, all of these commands, isn't just for my own personal well-being. It's for the well-being of others. Mm-hmm. It's for the well-being of my neighbor and the well-being of the others that are around me. And isn't that like Christ? Mm-hmm. Well, we're a holy nation. Though I, I mean, it, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, well, to me, it reminds me of, and I, he goes on, I think, to talk about this in a later chapter, but it reminds me of the sacramental nature of Christianity. And he, he provides Augustine's definition of sacrament being a visible sign of an invisible reality. And so Christianity is by nature sacramental in that it is filled with visible signs that somehow like mystically are connected to the invisible reality. So obviously uh, so communion is one of those, but, but the church being the body of Christ. Uh, yeah, so it's, you can't be in the life of Christ apart from being in the life of the church. And, 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 and in Dina, those relationships, in those communal those relationships, relationships is, is where yep. the holiness takes place. So it's, exactly, exactly. And, and, and the holiness represents God's otherliness, his, who his, his, Unlikeness, and it, it brings me back to when when asked maybe one of the most important questions: God's what, unlikeness, the, unlikeness, and mm-hmm. and so we, we go back to the what are the first commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it: love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think that when you sin, we have to remember that in in being what what David brought up uh, in this book uh, was one of my favorite parts when he talked about moralizations. I think. My definition of moralization is holiness for the sake of my own good, to make me better. I don't watch PG thirteen movies. I only watch G movies. I don't watch. I don't yeah. smoke. And, and to make to make me look better, to make me look better, and that's precisely what it's not. Because what are you doing? You are stiff arming, and you're propping yourself up against the people in your community that God has called you to serve. And God has called you to love and God has called you to, to condescend towards, not condescend, to, to, to is that the right word? I think, yeah, I think condescend is the right word. Yeah, it carries a, a negative connotation in most people's minds, but I think by definition, yeah. it just means to, to stoop like God did us. Yeah, to stoop to. So I think when we consider holiness, it's working out our salvation for other people's good because that's what Jesus did for us. And doing that in a community and 
And when we're doing that for other people, we have other people in mind, and we're showing them the love of God. I think that's 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 like God, and that's the difference between moralization and and being holy like God. Because what did He do for us? He took Himself upon the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. I mean, these, this passage is pretty near where Paul is giving communal guidelines in, in Philippians. And he's telling them, "Hey, guys, work this out. This is how you work it out." So I, I think there's an aspect of God's holiness that we have to remember because how many times do you hear people on on, on a, um, a rant about the holiness of God and they're doing they're harming people? Mm-hmm. He's untouchable, ju- can't be approached. Which it, and they're, they're browbeating, fault yeah. finding, and browbeating. That seems to be like practical holiness. Oftentimes becomes a dogmatic dog. Not not that dogma is bad, but the tones of dogmatism mm-hmm. that browbeat people and fault find with people mm-hmm. and you're not, you don't have that person's good in mind when you're doing that. And that to me is where moral is. Yeah. Maybe yeah, a better way for me presenting to yourself sorry, David. as uh, you're presenting yourself as being, uh, holy, you know, and, and, uh, it, and, and, uh, you know, you're implying really that there's something about you, you know, so that, that, that makes you special. Whereas Paul said, mm-hmm. you, everything you have, why are you taking credit for it? Everything you have is what is what's given to you. Yeah. You know, if I, if I'm commanded to lay my life down for my wife, well, I can't do that. I have to say, God, you know, I yield my will to you. That's my part of it. You know, I yield my will to you and I ask for the strength and empowering of your spirit to enable me to do that or to do whatever else, you know, he's calling me to do. Uh, I, I, I do it by the empowering of the spirit. And that's what saves us from, uh, that's what saves us from being legalistic and self-righteous because if you're really honest with yourself and you allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, you realize that you're a absolutely hopeless position. You can't, you can't do the slightest thing without the help of God. Perhaps even uh, so, totally depraved. Well, Sorry, indeed. I was making a Calvinist joke, but I don't think Chris heard me. Um, so you know what though I I will say this it, I will say this that totally totally depraved actually sounds pretty enticing to me like I see that doctrine I'm like mm, I'm kind of <laughs> reaching for I, I do like that doctrine somewhat probably more than I should as an Armenian <laughs> you know, one, one one it's the first it's the beginning of the tulip you know once you've uh, come into that truth and it will lead you on into the rest oh, yeah I was I was just gonna say that perhaps a better way for me to have stated that because I think and you guys honestly feel free to correct me, but God is in a sense unapproachable. His holiness makes him out of our reach, but that's not the same as saying that God's holiness means that he can't come to us. Cause I think sometimes that message gets, you know, misconstrued or misunderstood. I think it's because I God think his, is holy is so other. That means that he can't be in our midst when but Jesus think, obviously proves that wrong. I, so let me just jump in here. I think that's exactly what a moralist would think. Because that's projection. Because that's how a moralist is towards mm, other people. Wow. Mm-hmm. And they got it mixed up. The holiness of God is exactly what makes him come towards us. Mm-hmm. That's what makes him unlike us. Is that mm-hmm. he, because when we think somebody's less than ourselves, we don't go near him. Somebody's begging. We don't want to go near the poor person. This is exactly what the gospel shows. We don't want to go near the, we don't want to go near Bartimaeus. You know, in, in the stories of Bartimaeus, we always figure what we look at is Jesus walks up to him. What we miss is all the people that walk past them and all the people that are willing to walk past them. The disciples are walking past them. The Pharisees, 
They don't even want to, they're even worse. They don't even want to be bothered with them. They're trying to throw them out. Jesus comes towards him. It's come, that's the holiness of God, completely different. And that in his holiness, he's unlike us, but he comes towards us and he offers himself to us. That is completely different from what the Pharisees did, who is our example of moralism. The Pharisees, they avoid, they, but yet they prop themselves up to be close to God. And that's exactly what they're not. And that and, to and me from is memory. The author grounds that reality in the fact that because God is Trinity, his holiness by nature is, is outgoing because God is yeah. always outgoing towards himself as father, son, and Holy spirit. And yeah, our this- sin doesn't, hasn't stopped him from doing that. He's still been outgoing towards us. Yeah. There's the ontological trinity, okay, which is the prayer of the divine dance, which is a trending word, I think, in theology right now. But Interpenetration, so to speak. <laughs> the divine I, death. Just, just as a non-scholar, could I just make a request that all you scholars stop using the word penetration <laughs> in your scholarly language? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out to the scholarly universe. That's Jay, my official so- request. Okay, I was actually going to put up a, a thing today on the meme page that says, what are some trending words in theology that annoy you? And you, when you see that one go up, Jake, I, I please, I expect you to answer I, the comment there, okay? That along with empire and others, okay? Yeah. Are you just going to put the perichoresis part and then can I interpret? It, it, please, the, we'll do a Great. divine dance as we do so. Yeah, maybe we can have an interpenetrative <laughs> meme. Divine. <laughs> only if only if Michael only if Michael joins in to make the turn. You just you just put up a paracrisis and I'll just in all caps comment interpenetration. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Da- David is already looking at me uh David's, David's non approvingly. So, David's Wi Fi is about to go out. That's what it seems like to me. Um so Okay, have, let's finish so, this up and talk quickly yeah. about freedom because I really do also want to talk about this yep, let, we're done. this confusing passage. Are you sure? Freedom. Yeah, let's go. Okay, David. You're the freedom guy. I'm going to pass the baton to you to, to lead this. Let's do like well, three, three I, or four I, minutes I, I of freedom. Just, yeah, it was the omnipotence of God was the talk. But don't talk, about, don't talk about COVID vaccines and masks, please, because that's the <laughs> same damn point that you make every time you talk about freedom. <laughs> Sorry, rant yeah, over. Outburst. <laughs> you know, all comes out when these two, two you get two yeah. Armenians on the boat. Uh, oh my gosh. Anyway, um, he made some terrific points in here. Uh, let's see. God's omnipotent freedom can never be properly understood apart from his love. For when God create what when God creates an omnipotent freedom, he creates in and for love. And um, so he, let's see. Uh, let me just go on for a bit here. Um, he talks about power in the way we understand it uh, is often understood in terms of self-preservation, the ability to protect ourselves from any perceived threat. Um, and so therefore, vulnerability and suffering we equate with weakness. Um, and the incarnation overturns all such notions because the greatest expression of God's omnipotence of his power and ability to do everything is actually the suffering of Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so freedom, again, in the world from a, you know, ungodly or unlearned perspective, I mean, untaught by the spirit perspective, freedom is understood as the untrammeled exercise of self-will 
in the service of self-defined self-actualization. In other words, freedom is the ability to do what I darn well want to do. Um, but that's not freedom. That's actually the epitome of sin. That's actually what sin means. Um, the the uh, ability to do anything I want to do. And so uh, our freedom, therefore, mm. Uh, mm-hmm. as as believers is to walk in the way of the cross to walk the way that jesus did he exercises freedom in the laying down of his life and um, that is how we exercise our freedom and i think that uh um this is where you know christians have have drunk the the uh, poison chalice of of the worldly idea of freedom uh where we uh get you know, as the British say, we get our knickers in a twist over, <laughs> um, over uh, you know, the fact that someone's telling us we can't do something when we think we should be able to do what we, as the British would say, jolly well want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's not what freedom's all about. That's not what Christian freedom is all about, because God didn't define freedom and Jesus didn't act and exercise his freedom that way Jesus exercises freedom in the laying down of his life. And so the New Testament is absolutely full of ways in which we express our freedom, none of which are in accord with the kind of understandings of freedom that we would equate with libertarianism, which is, oh, well, I get, I, it's the ability to do what I want to do and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. No, we're, we limit, we limit um, our ability uh, as citizens of a nation, we sacrifice freedom. We're, we're, we, we sacrifice a measure of our freedom for the common good. We do the same in church. We do the same in marriage. We do the same in our, if we're a Christian employee hmm. or employer, whatever. And I think if we understood that we're freed from something, but we're equally freed for something, we're freed from the power of the law, sin and death, but we're, we're freed for service and obedience to God by walking in the way of the cross. So that's my sermon for today. But I mm-hmm. thought that uh, he really expressed it very well, it, particularly in putting out the fact that God himself chose to exercise his freedom, not in coming down, Jesus coming down and hurling lightning bolts and calling down fire on the Samaritan villagers like the disciples wanted to do, but actually in laying his life down on the cross. And so what does it mean to be free? If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You know, um, and what, what is what is freedom? Uh, it's the it's the empowering by the spirit to lay our lives down and walk in the way of the cross. So I just think that together. Yes, corporately, obviously. Yeah. It, 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 well, I think that's a key, right? Freedom, because if if that's freedom, you, then it has you. There is no. There is no way of the cross apart from the church who carries it together. That's correct. And, and, and also your freedom is expressed outwardly in relation to um, the, the people who are around you, people who God has placed around you, whether they're Christians or not. So there's also it's a, a multitude of ways mm-hmm. in which we have to make daily choices to get, which govern uh, how do we exercise our freedom? Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you just really quick, because we could, we could keep going on that, but uh, the question that I think comes to everybody's mind is how do you then distinguish that between uh, a healthy expression that, that 
God has in mind versus just being a slave to each other's every whim and, and emotional instability. And you know, like, there's so much that comes along with communal life. Like certainly Jesus does not have a mind that me being truly free means that I'm to be, uh, completely beholden to every women desire of, of others. Well, no, it's, it's, uh, it's how do I conduct myself in the way that Christ would conduct himself, did conduct himself toward me. So mm -hmm. Christ does not endorse every women desire I want to do. He comes in, in love and in discipline, like we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. to correct me for my own good. So that's why sometimes, you know, it, that's why in church we believe there's a, a place of correction of people in love. We speak the truth in love, etc. But uh, uh, there's a difference between a leader coming along, you know, and and seeing someone who's, you know, caught in adultery or something like that and coming along and, and saying, you know, that's wrong. You, that, that, that's wrong to do that. You can't do that. And et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and someone, a leader coming along and saying, well, you're a jerk, you're hopeless, you know, that you're finished. And God hates you because you've committed adultery, you know. So we we have to to walk in a loving way in everything that we do. But the posture that we all should have as believers is that you exercise your freedom in service. That's what it boils down to. And Christ came as a doulos, as a, as a slave, and we come as servants to God, to each other the nation in which we live, uh, and how do we express that? Uh, you know, we, you know, we'll never find all the correct answers for it. And that's why when you apply it into the realm of politics, you have to be careful not to be, you know, arrogant and dismiss everyone that disagree, you know, has a different viewpoint, but, um, we, 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 we need to have the right attitude that are we walking in love and service? Is that how we're expressing our freedom. We have freedom to lay down our life. It's a totally yeah. different philosophy than the world has. Yeah. Yeah. I think David does a great job explaining this. Um, and there's, he's left very little for me to even, yeah. Cause he's done just, just great, David. I couldn't agree more. Freedom has to come. And this is not even, uh, this is biblical, but uh, I think this is widely recognized. So this is, I don't want this to sound like a platitude. Like I'm trying to say something deep. But freedom comes with responsibility. And more than responsibility, I think biblically speaking, it comes with sacrifice. Uh -huh. Christ served sacrificially to other people. And to answer your question, I do think that when we are exercising our freedom properly, we are liberating people to serve God and to fear God versus holding them in, in, in binding them into some sort of uh, restricting their love for God. Um, I may demonstrate my freedom a certain way, but if, if in demonstrating my freedom, I'm unlawfully harming somebody or doing harm to myself. Now that's an irresponsible use of freedom, but it could for argument's sake say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm free to do this. But if you're harming somebody in doing that, and I don't mean something that's uh, arguable. I mean, something that is very obvious that you're right. doing to them. Um, that's not an example of Christian freedom. I'll give you, you know, one of the examples I was looking at while Dave was talking was in, in Luke chapter nine, where 
where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That's really important. He's on his way to the cross. He's making this journey, and this this is what theologians call the uh, what do they call it the 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 the, the path to the cross, or you know his his journey yeah. to the cross. Yeah, what's it called? Yeah, yeah. There you go. And 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 you know thanks, Doctor. Thanks, Doctor Campbell. We're, 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 that's part of it. This is really important. It says so when he set his face to go to Jerusalem in verse fifty-one of Luke nine. That's extremely important because that what, is, what does Jerusalem represent to the hearer at this point? Well, it represents probably where he's going to die. By this point, you know that they're hostile towards him in Jerusalem, and his disciples say, you know, the the, the people that didn't, didn't want to receive him. In verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Again, it tells you he's going to Jerusalem. And and James and John, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? My my thing in reading is, are we free, Lord, to cause fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? Let's do it. In their mind, they thought, this is the best choice. We're free to do this. And I don't think necessarily... If this is metaphor, I don't think it's too far from what the metaphor represents. Maybe it's euphemizing what they really want to do to those people. They were angry. And Jesus turns and rebukes them, right? And then the scripture says, and they went on. They went on. They moved back towards the cross. I think this is telling us that freedom has to be cross has to be cross-shaped and cross-centered. That when we make decisions using our freedom, we have to ask ourselves, where is the cross in all of this? Mm-hmm. And that's not to say, oh, we, we let people run over us. But there are times where you do lay your life down, and it feels like people do run over you. Right? Yeah, I would agree with you completely. And having lived in Christian community for the entirety of my life, uh, I, I, I see it, and I'm, I'm with you. I, the things that I, you know— the things that I have in mind are twofold. Like number one, um, uh, there certainly is occasion for immaturity to be corrected um, and not to be submitted to. And number two, I think as it comes, and, and that's you know more in in the interrelationship between church, church people in the church. But in the world, what is the expression of freedom like in in trying to help? point the world towards Christ. Because you made the point earlier of, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing physical or if you're doing harm to somebody in an inarguable way, um, then that's not a proper use of freedom. And I think you're right, but because of postmodernism and because, uh, you know, what is violence now is, is a matter of debate, you know, whether it's physical or psychological. So where's the line for the Christian where I go, no, I no, I won't say that, or no, I won't refrain from saying yeah, so, that because so I think, yeah, these are yeah, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. These are huge discussions, and they're they're like onions or like ripples in water. They start here and they mm-hmm. they 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 move they move forward, right? Boom, 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 boom. Like I don't think you start with externals to answer this question mm-hmm. to tell somebody, yeah, uh, you're going to tell me, th- and that's where people usually want to start with. They usually want to start with, well, can I tell somebody they can drink? Can I tell somebody they can't drink? <laughs> we start here. That let's let's forget about the externals for a second. I think when you begin to hurt or do harm to the imago day inside of a human being, mm-hmm. that they're created in the image of God, mm-hmm. whether you like them or not, 
whether they're your political party or not, whether they're your same faith or they're not your same faith, that human beings are created in the image of God and that imago day that's inside of them. When you start to do harm and act irresponsible towards that, I think you're hurting that person. And you're inflicting is that, that person. That, is, that's is that something to say, akin to attack ideas, not people? I think in a, in a, I think that would be a more general way of, of, of talking about it, but yeah. But at the same time, maliciousness, maliciously harming somebody, maliciously doing something um, to that individual for their harm. I, I, I think there's a lot of not, res, not respecting the image of God in, the, in that sense mm-hmm. of taking something from that person, stealing something from that person, um, taking advantage of somebody. Um, again, this comes back to the sin of self that's in us that comes from our brokenness and our depravity that we want to do those types of things towards individuals. And we, when we use our freedom for those things, I think that is satanic. And I think that's demonic. Mm-hmm. What if happens if they're full- using their own freedom to attack the Imago day within them? Again, I would think that's the same thing. I mean, look mm-hmm. at if I woke up in the morning and every day I started with my day with, I hate myself. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, mm-hmm. that's sinful. You know, I remember one time just to tell an anecdote. Um, I, I, you know, we think we, maybe there's a meme where you go to sleep at night, you think about all the cringe things you've done over your life, right? Like little cringe conversations, things you would. And I remember saying to myself, I hate myself for doing that. Mm-hmm. I didn't sleep that well that night. And I woke up in the morning and the conviction of the Holy Spirit was so profound. And it brought me back to saying that, how can I hate the image of God, mm-hmm. my life that he gave me mm-hmm. and because it's harmful and I can't use my freedom and I use my freedom to say, I hate myself versus saying, using the freedom of God to say, I love others. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the specific love- example that I have in mind, you know, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's tuning into this conversation to me, the, the greatest, uh, the the most obvious place where this conversation intersects with reality right now is is uh, sexuality and gender ideology. So somebody, because the world does define freedom as you know, as Charles Taylor's term, expressive individualism, or you know, to use the the terminology of the book, something as un totally untrammeled and without restraint. Um, because they do define freedom that way, that means that they're arriving at at absolutely not just wild conclusions, but satanic conclusions that do attack the Imago Dei. Um, that the world doesn't seem to have any issue with uh, promulgating throughout generations, even um, down into our children. And so, but to me as a Christian, I go even though you don't like hearing what I have to say about that topic to to me, it is not a Christian expression of freedom to say nothing just because <coughs> that's true. The person's so, preference. I think that there's a, a, I think there's two differences here. Mm-hmm. If we're going to talk about sexuality and, 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 and sexuality that is that we as Christians don't know that is unbiblical. Th- there's one thing to have a discussion and, and speak the word of God about what <coughs> uh, line up theology and parameters and pastoral things about what the scripture says about those ideologies. Mm-hmm. 
And that behavior, that human behavior <clears throat> that is taken on an ideological form that gets preached and gets taught and makes its ways into movies, into Netflix and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think we forget sometimes in having these conversations and dealing with the individual level, the individuals that are involved in this, it's coming out of a place of sinfulness mm-hmm. and it's coming out of a, a place of brokenness. And I think when Jesus would, would encounter those people, um, <clears throat> he would not let them off the hook for their sin, right. but he would deal with their brokenness mm-hmm. at that point with compassion and with love. <coughs> yeah, That's all I, I got I to say about that. Could, could not agree with you more. Absolutely. I, I think the, um, the, uh, the mix up. <laughs> while 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 one is sputtering, it. Wait, can I just say one? Can I just can I just say one thing on that, David? I, I think the the mix up right now is that we can't differentiate between compassionately handling somebody's brokenness and also not letting not letting people off the hook in terms of of what is sinful. I think we, we see the, it's kind of like the, seeing God's holiness and God's love as antithetical to one another. We see compassion and, uh, f- for lack of a better word, confronting an idea as also antithetical to one another. And I don't think that that's the case. I just wanted to put in a plug for my Exodus book because I've just written a whole book about freedom this year. So I'm just putting in a plug while Chris is muted because choking on something the lord has placed him into a, a coughing uh convulsion what? <coughs> sorry what did he say that god is judging him for right now well i, I don't, don't know. know you know it's just shutting him up for a minute so i can plug my book <laughs> it's a great discussion and um the topic of freedom seems to be one of those ones that has uh, perhaps more a more layers to the onion than some of the other attributes um so um okay let's let's close with this so um i bought my kids this book it's called the apostles creed for all god's children it's put out by lexon press shout out to lexon press um please you like that book jake i I just listened to a podcast a few months ago by the author of that book oh did you uh it's positive or yeah, well, he was the guy talking about it. I liked it. Oh, cool. Well, I bought it because I'm trying to do more like formational stuff with my kids. <clears throat> yeah. So I have this, you know, grand picture of me sitting in a big comfy chair in the evening, you know, with a, a couple candles lit and my kids sitting at my feet while I read to them the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, shout out to Lex Press and please uh, consider sponsoring our podcast. Um, but as I was reading it, uh, I – there. I get to this line and, you know, when you're, when you're reading it through the perspective of this, of like delivering it to your kids, you just maybe think a little bit more carefully. Um, and so I get to the line in the apostles creed, uh, about Jesus descending into hell. So he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and he descended to hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. Um, I, I just want to talk about that in connection to probably one of the more confusing passages in the new Testament about uh, dead people walking around in Matthew's gospel <laughs> when Jesus gets crucified. Are those two things linked together? Can we take 10 or 15 minutes and just unpack this idea? Maybe you guys have differing views on it. I don't know. Well, I mean, they are different uh, topics entirely, I think, but uh, um, I, I would assume that the that phrase uh 
descended into hell or descended at inferos in, in the Latin uh, means or at least alludes to the passage in the New Testament that talks about Jesus proclaiming, you know, to, to the, imp- the spirits in prison and so on. In, in, yeah, I pulled the passage if you want me to read it. In uh, First Peter. First Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, uh, after being made alive, he went and made pro- proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, if I understand that verse correctly, that has him doing that after his resurrection. Yeah, and I, and I think it I think it's a reference to Christ's proclamation of the defeat of the powers of hell. Uh, so I I, uh, I I I you know I I've never been able to kind of buy into the idea that Christ went to hell, um, but I do believe that you know Revelation presents a picture of the of the lost being held in Hades in that demonic realm, which is obviously under the authority of God, and that Christ proclaimed uh, to the spirits, uh, the the lost, spirit, the disobedient spirits mm-hmm. um, in held in Hades, uh, their defeat uh, through what he had done at the cross. Um, whether that means that Christ uh, visited them and there was manifestation, uh, I just don't think you could read that into the text. But I don't want to throw aside the wisdom of the apostolic church either. Right. Chris? So I think it depends on if you're evangelical slash Protestant, or if you're a Catholic on this one. Mm-hmm. The first um, the first copy of this clause, he descended into hell, is found in the 4th century, mm-hmm. right, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. But the Apostles' Creed supposedly came out, um, what, 180, 200, 220, something of that nature. So presumably without it. Now, what do you do? So what do you do with it? Because Aquinas comes up with four, if you like Aquinas, if you're an Aquinaite, comes up with four reasons why Christ descended into hell. And I was examining those today because I found that interesting, four of which I'll read them off. He might take upon himself the entire punishment for our sins. He might perfectly deliver his friends. He would completely triumph over the devil. And he would um, preach or uh, greet the just in the underworld. So that's basically Aquinas in, in, in four bites, why he feels. Right, because the the word that's translated hell is... Hades, sure. So he's Hades. not... So, it's so, not the same so, as like okay, eternal so let, punishment. Exactly. So this is really important as a Pentecostal to understand this. Because I think sometimes, and I don't think there's a difference. If you take the classic Protestant position and you gloss over this and say, I, for instance, South uh, Bruce Ware... He says, this is not really in there. And he's going to defer back to 180 or 200 when it's not there. So he's going so to say that the original Apostles' Creed didn't have the phrase, he just <clears throat> He's gracious about it. And he's not going to come after you if you want to maintain that he went to hell. Mm-hmm. Wayne Groom's the same way. He's like, hey, it's not, we, we, it's a sketch thing. The Catholics mm-hmm. took it, they ran with it. And 
which comes up in Aquinas, but these are later scholars that are going to engage with it and they're going to talk about it. But if you go back to the first 700 years of church history, you really don't find it. And then you find it in in the catechism. Which the Catholic Catechism I was reading today says some really great things about it, and then there's a homily on Holy Saturday that talks about Christ coming out of the of, uh, coming up out of the grave and what's taking place while he's in there. But he's not he's not in hell suffering and being tortured, right? Which and there's a doctor. first point about experiencing the full brunt of the human sinful condition that would be uh, against that. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I don't think Aquinas is saying that he's down there. Maybe he is, but if he is, it's not. It's not as verbose as some sort some some, some Pentecostals who um, go to the length of saying that Jesus went to hell and he suffered every sickness in hell, every disease in hell, and is and and there was worms. I mean, I've heard Pentecostal priests there's worms coming out of his flesh and, and to that nature. Oh wow! Yeah. There's literally nobody that you'll find that's going to that length. Right. So if you're going to Separate. reject it, for, you can always count on Pentecostals. <laughs> you can always count on Pentecostals for, <coughs> excuse me, for a little bit, a little bit extra. So I all think that, if you're going to say, contextual reading, I think if you're going to say, if you're going to say, this this is my advice. This is where I'll leave it. If you want to go with the fact that it's there. Because and you don't mind starting it in the fourth century, mm-hmm. and you don't mind that you really only see it once mentioned, and that's in a writing six fifty. Mm-hmm. But if you like Aquinas, you, you're you're going that that way, okay? And and the Catholic Catechism, that's fine. But if you're going to reject it, don't reject it because of what the Pentecostals have said about it. That oh, yeah, the, the Pentecostals can't be right. He didn't suffer that way, so it's not there. Reject it for the sake of maybe you're not convinced. Number one, historically, and number two, scripturally, because what evangelicals do make a good case is what David's making, is that the text just doesn't support the idea right. yeah. at all. At least and not strongly enough which, for us to say absolutely <clears throat> that he did it. Or 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 even exactly. And this gives and this raises an even bigger question, Jake. When do you start disagreeing with the historical church? And when right. do you start disagreeing? At what at which councils do you start disagreeing? I mean, this is what we were kind of getting into on the Theos podcast the other day, is at which councils do you start saying you start departing? And at which I mean, I think we'd all agree that the nice that the, 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 the Nicene Creed, we're all we're all, nobody's going to disagree with that. But at, at, when you get to the Athanasius Creed. Okay, what do you do about that? Because it says eternally punished in hell, right? Well, are we talking about Eternal, I mean, Augustinian and the eternal conscious punishment. Are you talking about? Um, are you talking about <coughs> what's it called? Uh, annihilation. Annihilation. Annihilationism. Or do some people would say, well, let's, let's not even go. We can start disagreeing at that point with the church. So that begins another question in church history. When do you start disagreeing with the fathers? Yeah. On that note, I'm just finishing up a book right now called uh, Hell Under Fire. It's a compilation of a bunch of. Um, contributors, GK Bills in there, David, um, Douglas Moo, a number of other scholars. Great book. That is uh, making the case for eternal conscious punishment. So if anyone's ever curious about that topic, recommend that book. Um, I guess what's at stake here to me is I once heard a very famous preacher say that they felt like they could potentially make a case for, uh, for universalism because of the idea that Christ ascended into hell and preached the gospel and because 
that would have been something that was done outside of time. That means that Christ is perpetually preaching the gospel to people who go to hell, and therefore they have an opportunity to believe and get to go to heaven. You see, there, I, there's the problem. I don't. I just. I think I'm recounting that argument accurately. And if I'm not, then I apologize. But I think well, I, you, you may be. But the verb is caruso in uh, in the the First Peter text, where you know it's it 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 isn't. Um, the the euangelizomai to preach the gospel it's just to declare or proclaim and so the idea is that christ is proclaiming the um their defeat to the imprisoned spirits to the disobedient spirits uh, who are then linked with the genesis 6 spirits where we get into another whole thing but um uh so it's it's christ triumphing over the powers of hell and declaring their total defeat to them. That's got, it's got nothing to do with preaching the gospel or going to hell to open up uh, to have an altar call or something like that. That's absolutely not what, what the text is talking about. It's the triumph of Christ mm-hmm. on the cross. Which means that we're fine to say maybe Christ descended into shale. I think but, if you go, but unequivocally, not because he went there to preach the gospel to the damned, in, in the and, sense of trying to convert them. No, it doesn't seem. No, and let me give to you what the um, the Catholic Catechism says about it. While I'm pulling that up, maybe David wants to pontificate a little longer. Maybe um, David can pontificate on why Matthew has dead people walking around at the crucifixion. Well, I, I, I just think it happened, you know. Uh, well, I have that, no doubt that it happened. I just want to know. It's like, um, I think Don Carson in his commentary in, on, uh, uh, in, on John's Gospel that Chris was referring to earlier um, said that when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, the truly extraordinary thing uh, was that every single person buried in the cemetery did not rise from the dead because of the power of the command of the son of god and uh, i think that you know what happened there was a demonstration of it was like the raising of lazarus you know or the uh, son of the widow of nain it was jesus uh the power of the resurrection being displayed it was so powerful that it raised not only Jesus, but other people. The only difference being, obviously, that those other people that were raised from the dead subsequently died again, same as Lazarus would have done. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, though, because it didn't happen at his resurrection. It happened at his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a, it, that, that it, but that in itself is the crucifixion, resurrection are all part of the same event. Mm-hmm. They're all part of the triumph of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on the cross, and God's yeah. demonstrated it. Same as the you know, because there were other signs. One of which was the curtain was was torn in two, uh, signifying the way to God mm-hmm. is open. It's not through the old way anymore. It's now open the way to salvation to everyone of every nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were signs. They were all prophetic uh, signs, uh, visible signs accompanying the um the death and resurrection of christ mm-hmm. yeah but it has no connection whatsoever to our other subject at hand about christ no totally not, none whatsoever no it was a it, it, it's like the um, bonus round i think that's a good bonus round though it's a good bonus round what do you mean this is what the cat 
I, well, the, the question, you know, it's kind of like it's a it's a bonus for everybody. We talked about all these things that are that are unified, and now we have a bonus subject that we're talking about, which is the resurrection. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. So uh, this is the Catholic Catechism. This is the frequent New Testament affirmations. The frequent New Testament affirmations that Jesus was raised from the dead presuppose that the crucified one sojourned in the realm of the dead prior to his resurrection. This was the first meaning given in the apostolic preaching that Christ descent into hell. That is, Jesus, like all men, experienced death, <clears throat> and in his soul joined the others in the realm of the dead. But he descended there as Savior, proclaiming the good news to the spirits in prison there. Scripture calls the abode of the dead, to which Christ went down hell, because those who are deprived of the vision of God. So on and so forth, the gospel is preached even to the dead. The sent in hell brings the gospel message of salvation to complete fulfillment. This is the last phase of Jesus' messianic mission. <clears throat> which phase is condensed in time, but vast in its real significance. The spread of Christ's redemptive work to all men at all times and all places, for all who are saved have been made sharers in the redemption. Christ went into the depths of death so that the dead would hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus, the author of life, by destroying, by dying, destroyed him who has the power of death. Henceforth, the risen Christ holds the keys of death in Hades, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and, un and under earth. Um, and here's from that homily. Today a great silence reigns, a great silence and a great stillness, a great silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised <clears throat> up will all have slept whoever since the world began, so on and so forth, So which is what they sing on Holy, on Holy Saturday. So I would say that my, my thing would be if, if you're going to go with this, do so um, based, do so accurately with how the Catholic church has laid it out. I don't necessarily agree. I would probably say the text doesn't really support it. And Can you um, summarize like in just basic language, what you just read. I, I think it's, so almost, I think it's almost implied universally. <coughs> that Christ went to people who were right. Uh, well, no, no, it, it would, it's specific. It, I think uh, what Aquinas is, is trying to say, I think what those four points that Aquinas gives it, it summarizes that, but Aquinas makes it certain that he's not going to the, Debt. He's going to his friends. He's going to those who are righteous. Those who are in, in paradise. Well, They're they would be in Hades. But aren't they, they at <coughs> Abraham's bosom, so to speak? Exactly. I, you know, we'll have to ask. We'll have to get the Pope on here and ask him one of these days. Well, <laughs> have him sort it out not, for us. They, 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 a lot of the Catholics don't think too highly of the Pope's doctrine these days. So yeah, anyway, wrong Pope. But I'm not. I'm not That's a true. Catholic, so I'm not getting involved in that dispute. <laughs> So basically what I'm arriving at is I'm going to skip that page when I read this children this book to my children. I think if you're if you're within evangelical tradition and and if you're good doing good Protestantism, which I would recommend, you will skip that page. And that settles it, gentlemen. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for your time, uh, as always, David, and to you, Chris, for joining us yep. today. Sorry about the uh, coughing fit. I don't know what got into me there. What happened what, to you? It was a Pentecostal manifestation. Uh, let me explain. Before let me explain. I'm drinking an Americano, which I got for free because mm -hmm. they didn't have other coffee they gave it to me, and it dried my throat out, and I just couldn't. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, couldn't get in. Couldn't hang. Good thing I wasn't preaching. So good thing that is the worst when like your your throat like clenches up and you just you can't help but cough. That and Sorry. laughing in a meeting when you're not supposed to be laughing, but you can't stop laughing. That they're both also bad. the worst. Yeah, yeah. 
Frederick, edit it out. Edit it out, Frederick, please. He can't. You were coughing. You're 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 coughing, and then your your uh your not so subtle keyboard typing, which your microphone picks up really well, by the way. Anyway, everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the Vast Podcast. We love you. Like, rate, all that stuff. We really appreciate it, and we'll see you very soon. <laughs>